Welcome to the Portion Podcast, a weekly discussion of the Torah portion of the week. I'm your host, Aaron Roller, here with my co-host, Rabbi Jonathan Bienenfeld. Hello. This week we've got, um, what, I, I don't know, the, the Torah takes another turn uh, this week in Parshat Truma. We went from the, the Ten Commandments to laws to now, um, now it's like we're in Ikea. First fundraising effort. First, oh, history. that's a good way to put it. Yeah, tr- Parshat Truma. Truma means literally donation. Yeah, well, really, I mean, etymologically, it is from the, the root laharim, like to raise, I mean, which, which has the sort of equivalent connotation of, of a fundraiser. It actually means lifting, lifting money out of others' pockets. <laughs> uh, you know, my father would, would say, my father is an attorney, and when I was once in an elevator with him, and he was, you know, he's in an office building full of lawyers, and he said, to this other lawyer who's in the elevator with me, goes, what kind of lawyer are you? You got your hands in your own pockets. I like that. Your father sounds like a delightful man. I'd like to meet him one day. I think you know him well. <laughs> anyway. So they speaking had to, of fathers-in-law, how about that Yisro guy, huh? You no, know, speaking of, of uh, well, I don't know if this is, this is not fundraising in the sense that we're, we're not being paid, but we've got, um, we've got awareness raising to do because our, our live show is coming up. That's right. Very exciting. March 2nd, Saturday night, March 2nd at the Cats JCC in Cherry Hill will be the first live broadcast. I've explained this before, but this is part of a, a larger, a larger event called the forum where they've got multiple events from multiple Jewish institutions all across Cherry Hill participating. We are going to be uh, in the third and final of the sessions. And I, I, I want to just, be very clear that I'm very competitive about this at this point because I've seen there are some people who are lovely who we are going to be who we were scheduled um, to be up against. That's right. And I I want I want our room to be packed. Yeah, bring it. Yeah. So if you're if you're listening to the show and you're in you're in Cherry Hill, no excuse. If you're in Philadelphia, make the trip. You'll make it over certainly by the third session when we go. You'll be there. Bring bring a friend, bring two friends. Anywhere really between, I would say, like Boston and Washington, D.C. There's really very little excuse. Plenty of time after Shabbos. You need to make it over. If you need hospitality for Shabbos, you call us, you let us know, we'll work it out. That's we can, It could be a portion Shabbaton. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm really excited because since <laughs> this is going to be our first live episode, it also means this is going to be the first time that Aaron's going to be recording in something other than pajamas. Which, uh, what makes you think I'm going to be wearing anything? I'm going to be. I, so you're, I, I guess that's true. Something I'll, other than footsie pajamas. I'll be in. Be a nice I'm actually having my my portion footsie pajamas designed for the event. Ooh, can we get like a matching matching pairs? Matching pairs? Oh, I, you like, were you were very derisive just now. Like I don't one, know. We can look like thing one and thing two. <laughs> <laughs> great. That's that. That's definitely. Those are should be our alter egos. Alter egos for the show. Um, anyway, but seriously, um, go to the the Cats JCC website and get tickets. And uh, really, bring bring friends, bring bring family, and uh, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be a good time. We Do want we have to a link up on our Facebook page. We um, I we can. May, yeah, we yeah. Can. There, if 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 there isn't at the time of recording, by the time you're hearing this, there will be. Awesome. Um, so back to back to the Mishkan. So I find this so okay. On, on the one level, this parsha, this Torah portion, seems extremely dry and extremely technical, and dare I say, a little bit boring. Well, it depends on whether or not you like furniture, carpentry, precious metals. Well, so so firstly, I, I, that's that's exactly right. I, I think that just to give the overview, gotta remember the overview of the parsha. So this. This parsha is all about 
collecting materials to make the, what in English is called the tabernacle, it's frequently translated as, um, in Hebrew it's called the Mishkan, and I would say a better translation would be resting place. I like that. That's great. Yeah. You know, it's a much better, much more direct translation also. Right. Mishkan has the, the Hebrew root uh, shachen, uh, shin, chaf, uh, nun, which means to, to rest or to reside. A neighbor is called a shachen. And, uh, and one of the names for God's, God, a name refers to God's presence is shchina. The, the rest, the, I, I don't know how you translate divine, that. but it's Divine presence. The divine presence. So the mishkan is the place is the resting place for when this is, this is where it opens up philosophically and gets exciting and stops being a, a dry uh, manual of construction is that what does it, what does it mean to, to make a place for God? Because the, this Torah portion, so it's all about the collecting the contributions that were needed, right? The, we, we have read already that the Jewish people they they collect their back pay essentially when they're leaving Egypt we, we debated about this, trying to figure out what it, what it meant in their methodology, but they, they basically come out and they've got a lot of stuff with them. And it's about saying, all right, um, you know, contribute some of it to make a, uh, a resting place for God that's going to be in the center of the camp. So this really becomes a very, really very tangible partial also. And I think it's something that we probably don't think about often enough because we are monotheists who are, I guess, primarily at least surrounded by other monotheists, considering where we live and our interactions and, and the, the societies that we inhabit, at least for, for the most part, for most of most of our listeners. But we're monotheists surrounded by other monotheists. And the idea of religion and, and God and the divine presence and the encounter with God being something that that is is rather intangible. Uh, that is something that you can't literally can't quite put your finger on because there aren't those objects and there aren't those effigies. There aren't the things that you can interact with. This is this is really something of a of an incredible compromise where God looks at these human beings who are obviously very physically oriented and they occupy physical space and their whole their whole orientation is just the physical and the material. And recognizing what a difficult jump it is and, uh, and how, how uh, difficult it's going to be, or, or it already has been, to tell them that you can't have idols, you can't have pillars, you can't have statues, you can't have any real representation of me. So he sort of throws them a bone and says that you can at least have a building. You can have a building where all the finest stuff, all the most precious and most refined materials, metals, textiles are going to be brought in order to to build me what is the 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 most luxurious abode that you you could possibly create. That tension is definitely going to play itself out in in two weeks when we get to the the golden calf. But I I, I love the way that you put that as being right. Like there was a a, a shout out to one of my favorite podcasts, Reply All. They just did a a show all about the telemarketers and, and the phone calls. And so you know we we've uh, un, there's actually like legal reasons for why in the last uh, year or so the the calls from telemarketers have gone through the roof. Like there are some FCC regulations that changed, but we're used to getting calls and it's kind of annoying. And you know you get envelopes in the mail and you know do you do you want to give? Is this an important cause? Is this a worthy cause? But like I love the way that you phrased it that this was like an accommodation. The idea of donating, if you had just had that experience at Mount Sinai, you just had that experience 
of of sensing the divine and something we we didn't get to talk about, which I really had wanted to, was um, the way that the uh, the verses in the Torah refer to synesthesia, the idea that you can that your senses meld, yeah. right? That they are hearing the sights and seeing the sounds and, yeah. you know, but so you have this intense, intense, incredible prophetic experience and you want to mark it. You want to honor God in some way. And so this, this becomes um, an accommodation to them. I, I love, I love that. And in terms of the, the values, um, the, you know, the valuables that are, that are in it, I was really struck reading the Parsha. And I'm just going to, going to read the first, uh, the first couple of verses where it's detailing what's going to be given. This is the portion that you shall take from them. Gold and silver and copper and turquoise wool and purple wool and scarlet wool and linen and goat's hair and ram skins that are dyed red and tehashim skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for raising the smoke of the incense Shoham stones and filling stones for the aphod and for the choshen. Now, some of those terms are are need need interpretation, and I would point out there's a midrashic tradition that the techashim skins are unicorns, but whoa, that's you knew that, right? Uh yeah, yeah. But um, I don't buy it, but I knew it. <laughs> right, that's a very interesting. Yeah, that's no. Rashi says it directly. Uh, he says he says I'm gonna reading that in English. He says a kind of animal that only existed. At that moment in time, it had many colors. Therefore, it is rendered by Targum Unclus as a... Saskona. A Saskona, which sounds a little like Sasquatch, another uh, mythical animal. But anyway, a Saskona, for it rejoices and prides itself in its colors. The point is, but I, I was just struck by how how tactile it is, how they're donating things which relate to, I think, all five senses, right? There are these skins right. that you can touch, and the colors are very bright, and the luster and the of the metal, yeah, and then there's smell, and there's smokes, and, right. and incense that's burning, and we're going to read a little bit later on that they're, they're baking bread. So it's, it's really, I think, every single sense, this is a, a sensuous place where yeah. you're, you're, all five senses are, are engaged. And next, and, and the entire next book of the Torah will be almost completely dedicated to, uh, to taste, because we'll be dealing with the uh, carbonos, many of which are actually... The offerings and the sacrifices, many of which are shared either by the by the Kohanim or by the by the individuals who would who would bring them and would partake of the meat. And we'll speak about the the first fruits that are brought and and all these other things, as you mentioned, the the bread, the showbread that was uh, that was placed on the table. A lot of uh, a, a lot of of different um, sensory kinds of materials here. And so, one of the so the the kind of question we raised about like how do you create space. For, for God. And I think one answer that you, you sort of suggested is that it's it's a little bit of an accommodation to human beings, that it's not space where God is, because God is everywhere, but it's really a space for us to experience God. And that's, I mean, I feel like that has philosophical implications for so many things, but particularly prayer. You know, I mean, I've heard, I've heard people, I've heard, you know, rabbis teaching saying, okay, you know, it's true, you know, prayer has efficacy, and there have even been you know, studies that show that they give placebos, but people are praying. I mean, all kinds of research that's been done. Um, generally, I think it's accepted theologically that prayer works, but that a big part of praying also, and it's not a, a cop-out to say, is that you're trying to affect a change in yourself by by reframing, recentering your relationship to God. And I think that's very much 
part of the the sense that's here that in the center of the Israelite camp, right there, and we're going to get the the sort of the arrangement of the camp much much later on um, in Sefer Midbar, the book of numbers. Numbers, numbers. such a non-translation, but anyway, <laughs> but uh, but it, but the middle, the middle, God is in the middle, and uh, and God is in the is in their midst, and it's uh it's a very as as technical as some of this proportion is the the fact of it the fact that you make a place for god in your midst that i i think one way of thinking about it is it's all right it's it's a space where they can go to re reframe their relationship with god to refresh their relationship with god um you know it's it's that happens in a very um literal sense in terms of the the rituals that in terms of giving a sacrifice if there was a sin if there was a major life event just creating the space is a, i think i think it's just a Again, maybe what I'm saying is obvious, but I feel like when you think about it, it really is very, very impactful and really has implications for how we relate to holy spaces, the spaces that we construct to be holy, namely mostly synagogues, but there are others. Um, and it, it has it really has those implications. I think like so many things, it is obvious only because we have become accustomed to it and only because in, in that in that being accustomed to almost jaded by the whole the whole concept and certainly, you know, the novelty just wears off, but it's, it's a radical idea. The idea that within a monotheistic religion in, in which, which God absolutely insists that there will be no physical representation of me whatsoever. There will be no graven images and there will be no idols. There will be no effigies, but there's still going to be a temple. There's still going to be this, this edifice and this space in which you come to serve me is really, it's a really radical it's a really radical idea, and and I do think that it is something of an accommodation for for people. And another another wavelength that I think this all this all operates on that again it, it seems obvious, but I think it's a it's a really radical idea when you consider that uh, such a thing heretofore had it had never been suggested, which is that this isn't only a place where people come to meet God, but it also becomes a place where people come to meet people, and that's something that we probably take for granted in in our world and our Judaism, where it's just obvious that, of course, you construct synagogues and you construct public places, you construct yeshivas, you construct uh, community centers and the like, where we where we all see one another. And indeed, maybe that would have taken place no matter what, although we do refer to the synagogue as a mikdash na'at, right? It is it is modeled after the actual temple. And I'm not sure that we even necessarily would have thought to create individual and smaller communal synagogues, if not for this more centralized location. But even if we would have the idea that the entire nation is all geared towards and is all facing one particular location, all all convene upon this one location, and therefore there's this binding force that pulls all of these disparate tribes together into one nation, is another radical idea that we probably just, just take for granted. It's, it's interesting. I mean, something that I have noticed and appreciate about um, you in your, when you're wearing your communal rabbi hat is that I think more than a lot of other congregations that I've been in, I, I feel like you emphasize I've, in a number of your sermons have emphasized that the synagogue is a place for, is a place for community very much. I, you know, there are, have been other, <laughs> other synagogues, other schools I've been in where, you know, the focus on, uh, on decorum and keeping, the kids quiet and keeping the kids out and keeping, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, I think you've, you've 
talked about that also. The fact that there's decorum. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're more sensitive to that because you're going to feel like you're going to get get a pushback. But but no, but really, like the fact that there's that it should be a, a place where yes, it's a, a serious place, a place of prayer, but it's also a communal place. And I think that it's just interesting because I I I don't think that I have ever heard anyone refer to the Mishkan, the resting place, as um, as a place for all the people together. And you're right, it's sort of a, it's a no-brainer, but it's it's something that I haven't heard uh, specifically. It, re- it actually brings to mind um, my my good friend, Ari Gordon, um, one, of, one of my really close friends, just finished his PhD in religious studies, and he wrote about um, not Judaism, but Islam, and the tradition uh, that Muslims have of facing Mecca when they pray, and how originally the customs were not I didn't read the dissertation. I just spoke to him about it. So I you got the spark notes. I may get something very wrong, but my understanding is that there was not initially a unanimity in the early days of Islam about which direction. Some were facing Jerusalem, some were facing Mecca. Wow. Until, you know, I think I think it was maybe in Muhammad, in Muhammad's time even or or um, later on. But the bottom line is he wrote one of one of the things he wrote about was how getting the um, direction right. And of course, Jews face towards Jerusalem when we pray. But I believe Muslims are like more exacting about it. Like they will, I believe, and I really apologize to anyone. If, I don't know if we have Muslim listeners or just people who- We have some Jewish ones who don't. Right, <laughs> my, right, my, uh, my general general ignorance uh, on all things, I guess, requires an apology. But um, no, I, I think that Muslims like like are very um, sensitive in terms of like, like with compasses and stuff like that. Like they yeah. really want to get the line- the lines right um, where, where they and but the point is it's very important for identity and it's it's really uh, interesting that that sort of we have we have that happening here that this is that right the, the Mishkan is in is in the center of the camp and it's a it becomes the sort of the center for everybody and another another aspect of it here is right we talk about the construction of the different pieces of it and of course at the center the Mishkan is in the center of the camp but at the not really the center not not the geographically the center of the Mishkan because it's kind of a rectangle and towards towards the end I guess but the is is the Aron the um the Ark of of the Covenant the Aron Habrit uh you know made made famous in Raiders of the Lost Ark of course I think it was it may have been famous even before that made more famous made, made famous I want to say by the Bible, maybe? I mean, for for those who are less biblically inclined, I guess I don't. You, you know, it's, thank you, Harrison Ford. Do you do you think it's um? I, I mean, like it's I, I it, it's occurred to me that it's like it's really fascinating that like you know Spielberg makes this movie about like looking for the the Aron. It's like if such a it's such a Jewish thing that people. I feel like the Judaism of of Raiders of the Lost Ark totally gets lost, but then they have like that. They have like the the German, like they have the Nazi trying to like recreate what the Jews were doing for. It's really a pretty crazy thing. Yeah, but yeah, a lot of a lot of probably his uh, Jewish like demons all coming out in that. Literally, for those uh, who've seen it. Anyway, um, point is the the Aron is there in in the center of the Mishkan or at the heart of the Mishkan, and and inside of that is the is the Ten Commandments. That's where the uh, the tablets. The tablets reside, and so in in a certain sense, on a symbolic level, this is about how to take the experience of Mount Sinai with you. How do you take the experience of being encamped around this mountain and having the Ten Commandments and making it portable, essentially making this experience something that you can continue to relate to over and over again? 
And and one of the things that's interesting is that the 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 arc itself has to have its its um staves. It's the stank. How did I not remember the word staves? Unclear. These bars, these these bars that would poles. Pole. Thank you. Probably better. Yes. Yes. The pole. (laughs) The poles that they would use to lift it up. That pole would go through these rings that were on the side, and they would lift it and they could carry it. But the point is they. The, the poles never come out. No, the, not. Even even when it's at rest, the poles are still there. Uh, and it's very explicit that the portability of it is kind of inherent to the whole thing. Right. You have to have the sense that it can go much the way that the, the, the Mishkan in its entirety itself, right? Long before there being a permanent temple built anywhere, uh, whether it was sort of a more concretized and more sedentary version of the Mishkan that they have here out in the wilderness that becomes more firmly established at different locations once they move into the lands of Israel, and then, of course, the temple that resides on on the Temple Mount on uh, on uh, Har HaMaria in, in, in Jerusalem, uh, there is this completely portable pick-up-and-go version of the temple, and the and the Ark itself continues to mimic that same sort of, of imagery and that same sort of symbolism, that, that even when it's at rest, you have to be able to pick it up. You have to have the, the, the potential, the ability to pick it up and take it with you at a moment's notice, wherever you wherever you may go. I mean, we we sat. I just for our listeners, we sat down and Rabbi Bienfeld said, hey, "What are we going to talk about? It's you know, it's the tabernacle, it's construction." But I I'm like I'm blown away by all the the symbolism of it, and and I would say that like it's great because that's what Torah is, right? Like last week we're talking about ethics. We've spent a lot of time talking about narrative and the psychology of the characters. Like we are we get to you know it was biblical poetry. Like we get to operate in these conversations on on so many different levels the torah operates on so many different registers that it's just it's just incredible i think with i think with that in mind the the, the pivot that is made between these two parshiot is that much more important we're going from mishpatim right. and doing the right. swivel that totally right that totally hit me right like at no as it's almost like as soon as you think that you know what Torah is, what religion is, what Judaism's about, what what Judaism declares is the means of approaching God. You're you're just immediately thrown for a loop, and there's another curveball that's thrown. So as soon as you see Har Sinai and these these great over the top ethical principles, the kind of things that you could you know like stand out in a rally about, you know, talking about the the I don't know the the purity of the relationship between uh, the parents and children or not covenant, these very broad kinds of principles. Next thing you know, we're in the real nitty gritty, the real minutia, the real fine print of Parshish Mishpatim. And then the next thing you know, it's about, it's about aesthetics and it's about art and it's about beauty. And it's about, about the, the actual uh, you know, sensual kinds of feelings of, of being completely physically enveloped in this very holy and this very, you know, sensory uh, uh, and, and, and just evocative kind of kind of location. So it's, it's remarkable. And you, you talk about demonstrations and whatnot, and I, I don't want to, I don't even want to want to weigh in. I, I have nothing uh, really to, to add, but I, I would say that like, but it's just interesting that, that when we were reading Mishpatim, the, um, the debate around abortion, as you know, New York State just passed this very um, permissive uh, abortion law, and the um, there's just been so I've, I've seen verses from last week's portion quoted in these conversations on Facebook that, you know, the Bible says it's murder. No, it doesn't, because, it's, you know, we had a verse last week that two weeks ago we had don't murder. And last week we had if two men are fighting and, you know, and they accidentally uh, 
punch a woman and cause her to miscarry. Right. And, you know, so like, it's just, again, without making any like comments, cause it's way, way over my head, but just the point is the relevance of it in demonstrations. And like, it's literally what people are, are arguing about. And then to go from there to just this great, like serene sort of beauty. It's, it's, it's really, uh, I think it says a lot about, about how, I don't want to say how the Torah just keeps you guessing because it almost cheapens it, but the idea that that there it is just so multi-tiered and so multifaceted, and there are so many different dimensions, and, and and I don't want to say you know there's something for everybody. I think more than that, it's that it's that every one of us has to sort of find that dimension and find that find that wavelength within our, within ourselves to be able to, uh, to 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 serve God and recognize the importance of all of these things. Well, I mean, I was thinking it's so one thing that I've become very aware of, and it's not something that I didn't think about it all before we did this, these shows, but like the Torah is, is it's one thing to look at it as a, you know, it's, it's a rule book. We believe it. it's divine, but like one thing that's very real is that if you are, if you're living, if you're living the life, it's, it's actually spelling out the themes in your own life. Like it's, it's like, we believe that it's telling a story that is laying down um, the themes and the paradigms and the the symbolism that continue to affect like the way that I see my life, like the themes that are playing out in the Torah are the themes that I like, it doesn't stop. You know, it's, it's very much tangible to me. It's very, very, very real to me. And um, I guess with, with that awareness is like, what I'm thinking about is, is that we've seen the, the development of, um, you know, this idea of, of, on the most basic level, monotheism, this relationship with God develop and go from a family to a, a nation. And, and it, and I, it almost seems like with this, with this week's horror portion, it seems like it becomes the last week was something else. Like last week was like a, a law a, you know, a nation that has laws. And this is like a religion, right? I mean, there's all these questions you can ask, you know, is Judaism a race? Is it a religion? Is it an ethnicity? Is it a, is it a, a, a you know a sensibility? I mean, there's all kinds of directions you can go with that conversation, and and if, you know on, on a certain level the answer the simple answer is is yes and right it's 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 all those things and you know you got to sort of parse it out. But but I guess the point is like we get real um, ritual here, and I it's, I, it's cultish to some to some degree. Well, you, you start to get some of those some of those symbols. I mean, we're we're not getting into it as much here as much as as much as Hebrew by Ikra. But um, but but the idea of, of sacrifices and, and all that kind of thing. Now, now there's a temple, which is sort of it's it's just that this was you know everything else has been sort of like legalistic. It's the kind of things that societies have have built even uh, before this point. But but now you're getting some of that that religious ritual element that's poured in afterwards. Legalistic versus ritualistic. But again, but but to your point. And, you know, I, I think the word cultish is, is uh, sort of derogatory. But the point is, is that like the ritualistic and the legalistic and the psychological and the historical, like these things all function in the Torah. And it's, you know, part of this journey is is to find the ways that uh, the ways to, to relate to them. Um, I guess with that in mind, one of the an additional level of symbolism that I I really love, I don't remember um, where I read it. Probably, probably got some credit to, to to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs because I, I, you know, he, his his writings on the Parsha have influenced me so much. But um, the idea of reciprocity here, 
the idea that God creates the world for us. And, and the Mishkan is us sort of the idea of the, the Mishkan being a, um, either like an inverse version of the world or a miniature version of the world, but that the, the common thread, I mean, there's, there's just like, you know, you can look at it on a very high level of what well, God makes the world for us. We make some, you know, he makes something for us. We make something for him, but then there's, you know, sort of a stronger element of commonality is the, um, which I don't, I don't think it's touched on in this week's Parsha, but um, is Shabbos, right? Is the idea that God finishes making the world and it says, and God finishes all this work, this, this malacha, and he stops and rests and rest. God's resting is, is the Sabbath. And, and how do we know what, it means to do work on the Sabbath. It comes from those things which they used to build the Mishkan. The very what that means on a on a you know when you kind of connect the dots is that the work of building the Mishkan is the same thing as the work of building the world. Like it's the same sure right action and the, the same processes. The term the term rather than it being you know avoda or asiya is is malacha in all three of those instances. What we're prohibited from engaging in on Shabbos is not simply work. It's malacha, which is this very constructive brand of, of labor. And that's the same term that's used in the construction of the Mishkan. And that's the same term used in the creation of the universe. And so that, that to me is a, is a tremendous idea that, that it's connected. It's not just happenstance that, I mean, growing up, we always learned, how do you know what you can't do on Shabbos? Oh, it's the things that they did when they built the Mishkan. Right. But Right, that, that that's linked by that word is that the things that they did to build the Mishkan, the things that are detailed here, the, which are um, you know all kinds of embroidery and all kinds of metalwork and and I mean, you know whatever. I mean, you can you know learn learn the laws learn the laws on Shabbos and get it all. But but the point is is that it it's all the things that that this is this is that this is that work of building. So that the Mishkan becomes it becomes a miniature. There's multiple. Multiple symbolisms. There is a mini miniature Mount Sinai, but it's also a miniature world, and that's uh, and I think that those are images that are both worth um, carrying because they both I think inform some of the um, some of some of the the challenges and responsibilities and dynamics that are at play in the Mishkan itself. I mean, a lot of the rest of the Torah is going to be about what happens inside this place both um, from a legal perspective and that the book of Leviticus is all about the sacrifices as well as on a narrative level. Um, like what happens to um, not of Anavihu, the children, the children of, uh, of Aharon, the high priest, um, you know, and, and there's, and other things as well. So um, yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a very, so it seems dry on the surface, but it's, it's very, um, it's very symbolic and very meaning, very powerful. Um, I, I think one, one that I one more that I know about and one more that I, I don't and gonna gonna have to ask you about I don't, I don't know I don't know if you what you what you have for it but the um, the fact that the Aaron the the ark is covered by the by the um, the cherubs right it's got these two golden cherubs that are on top and um, the only other place that that cherub appears is Garden of Eden in the Garden of Eden that God appoints these two cherubs to guard the Garden of Eden from 
from Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, from returning. And and here they are, so, sort of, or, or literally standing guard above the tablets of, of the Torah. And we certainly say tradition, say every Shabbos, we say, that the Torah, when we return the Torah to, to its ark, we say it is a tree of life. That, so again, another 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 level here. So there's there's so much here, and it's it's symbolic, but it's tactile. You can see it and feel it, but it also sort of speaks on on so many deep levels. The one that I something that I, I don't know about is the um, it talks about constructing a table where there's going to be these uh, loaves of bread that get displayed all the time, the showbread. And I don't I don't really I'm sure it has deep some symbolic meanings. I don't know. Do you have any? Can any... you can you imagine like a group of Jews occupying a space in which there is no table and no food? <laughs> and that, that is hard. Yeah, that is difficult. And in fact, the uh, the Mishnah talks about the process of of eating it right in the temple every every Shabbos afternoon. The uh, they would right Shabbos the, afternoon the, they would the new ones the new ones would be inserted. They would slide out. There was no point at which they were completely the table was completely bare. So the new ones would would be slid into the into the racks above the table, and the old ones would be pushed out, and the Kohanim would sort of catch them. And one of the miracles that's spoken about, at least in the time of the first temple, is that they would remain fresh all throughout all throughout the week, which was it's it's miraculous, I suppose. And you know, if it happened today, we would be we would still be pretty stunned and pretty shocked. But suffice it to say that back then the idea of bread staying fresh for more than like 15 minutes after it was taken out of the after it was taken out of the yeah this was this is just utterly remarkable There's no preserve no preserve no Entenmann's cake exactly that, right it didn't come out soft and like squishy like a sponge like a loaf of Wonder Bread but uh, but it was remarkable I mean it's it's meant to re- be representative of and I think uh, I think you know so much of the the symbolism that you spoke about is really classic. And this dimension of the temple is meant to signify sort of that physical sustenance that's received that God gives to the to the to the Jewish people, to all people, to mankind. He sustains us. He supports us. It's always there. It's always present, uh, as opposed to some of the other dimensions of the of the Mishkan. The menorah is representative of wisdom. It's the light that shines forth, and then there's the 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 table that's representative of uh, of sort of the sustenance, the 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 parnasa, the livelihood that we. That we enjoy. I think thinking about about the Mishnah, the way that you uh, the way that you mapped out, I, th- I think it's I think it's really it's really critical. One of the things that I think about along that that same within that same scheme or along those same lines is, and we'll see this more and more as some of these actual laws, not just the 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 methods of furnishing the Mishkan, although that that adds to this as well, but. Everything within the Mishkan and then ultimately within the temple, within the Beis HaMikdash, is so carefully uh, guarded, defined. Uh, behavior is is very is very carefully, um, very carefully circumscribed. Uh, circumscribed. Good word. You gave me staves. I gave you circumscribed. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, just don't give me a circumcision. Uh, circum circumscribed. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and everything that they do is just, it, it's very, it's, it's all calibrated perfectly. And I think that that speaks to the reality of this serving as something of a microcosm, not only of, or not only a model or sort of an echo of Harsinai, but also something of a, something of a model for all the rest of, of the universe, you know, the, the universe or the, the world, all of society, it's really unruly. It's very difficult to, to control. It's very difficult to to, to rein in. 
And what the Mishkan affords us is an opportunity to sort of have a model, sort of have a model of, of how things should be in their ideal state, what things are really supposed to look like. And it's much more easily controlled. Stephen Covey has this great idea in uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I think about this all the time. I know that I've spoken about it a lot, uh, at least in Shul, which is the distinction between the circle of influence or the sphere of influence and the sphere of concern. It says that all too often people find themselves in the sphere of concern and we're worried about all kinds of things that we could possibly be worried about, even though we can't have any real impact on them whatsoever. And what we should try to do is move ourselves more firmly and, and more narrowly within that sphere of, of influence, things that we can actually affect. And that if you do that, he says the, the really remarkable thing is that the sphere of influence begins to grow and begins to expand. It actually fills up more and more and more of that sphere of concern. And that's how I think about the Mishkan. The thing about the Mishkan is this sphere of influence, that God gives us very strict, very narrow sort of parameters where everything can be very controlled and, 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 and very uh, clearly, specifically, properly calibrated. You stand here, you do this, you slaughter the animal at exactly this corner and you take it and you bring it over there. And these are the exact dimensions of all the furniture. This is what everything is supposed to look like to a T. And, and everything is, again, just very, very controlled. And what that suggests or what that is supposed to mean is that we get a little glimpse as to how it's supposed to be done right. And from there, we sort of expand outwards. And we think about that even in sort of a metaphysical sense, that all of the, the, the spirituality, all the holiness that ultimately cascades out of the, out of the temple, out of the Beis HaMikdash, does so in different orbits. And it starts within the, the, the Holy of Holies in the, in the temple, and then it spills out into the rest of the temple, and then it, then it cascades down, down and out into all of Jerusalem, and from there out into all the rest of Israel, and then all the rest of the world. So having that model uh, in which we can operate and see sort of the most ideal manner of creating this relationship with God then serves as, uh, as hopefully some sort of paradigm for the way that we can uh, craft the rest, of the, the rest of the world and the rest of society around us. So that, I, without disagreeing with that at all, because as we have discussed, the symbols function on, on different levels, I was thinking that it, in terms of the idea of this being creating, like creating a, a miniature world for God, I was thinking that like the, the halachas, all the different, um, you know, all the different laws and rituals that apply there almost operate like, like an alternative to the laws of nature, right? God makes... A, a world that is, you know, with all these all these physical laws, and, and they're all broken inside of the. Is that where you're going? No, no, not that they're all broken, but that they have their parallel. Okay. They have their parallel in the Mishkan, where the the laws are not laws of nature, but rather laws of, you know, spir spiritual laws or or ritual, ritual laws. Um, I don't know. That was just a sort of. A, I was trying to trying to, I guess, uh, um, fill out fill out the parallel in in my mind. But anyway, we are we're going to probably I think we're going to wrap up here, but we're in no by no means finished. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about um tabernacles and and uh ritual for a long long many many weeks and we'll try to hopefully keep it keep it interesting and and find new angles on it, but this is uh our first entree uh in into it. And um yeah, welcome. Welcome to the ritualistic side of things. <laughs> The Portion Podcast is recorded in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, produced by Aaron Roller. Our theme music is The Magid's Niggin by Simply Spot. We want to thank the Pravda Family Foundation for their sponsorship. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends about it any way you can. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate us, leave a review. We got a new review last week. It made me 
uh, very happy. Well, uh, you know, so happy. I'm actually going to read it on the air. Why not? This is from yeah, we got this is this is from uh, D Black Five Nineteen. You have any idea who D Black Five Nineteen is? I know exactly who that is. Hey, David, thanks for the great review. All right, he writes. This is a wonderful way to learn about the weekly Torah portion. The lecture is informative but fun to listen to as well. These gentlemen are a treat to listen to each week. Thank you, David, and uh, we we appreciate it. keep them coming because it does help uh, more people find the show and. Uh, and that's yeah. And uh, so so, rate us, review us, follow the show on Facebook so you can get that link to uh, to the live taping. Uh, have a good job, and remember, there is always more to learn.